0: Turn to Genesis 2, and in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to just get our background for today. Genesis 2, I'm just going to read, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, which is a word that means to guard it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Today I have one basic lesson for us, and that is that if you give a little ground, if you compromise a little, then later on you'll have gigantic battles to fight. Instead of setting a firm boundary now, now you're fighting an all-out war. If you think the occasional sinful use of your tongue is okay, yelling, reviling, disrespecting, you've given a little ground. If you think the occasional glance at another woman is okay, you've given a little ground. If you think a little disrespect toward those in authority over you is okay, you've given a little ground. And if you think that just a little compromise theologically in the church is okay, you have given a little ground. And later you'll find that you have given away your integrity. Now this is one of the maneuvers of Satan, the evil one, to tempt you to give just a little... So that later, he can take a lot. And history has provided for us a truly amazing illustration of this exact phenomenon. In 1933, Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. And essentially, after World War I, Germany was completely disarmed. But slowly, Hitler began taking small steps forward. He began rearming Germany in 1935. He made excuses to Britain and France who expressed their concern, but they eventually acquiesced and said, not a big deal, just an innocent move. The next year, in 1936, the Rhineland was remilitarized. March of 1938, Austria was quietly annexed by Germany, a little ground. In September of 1938, at the Munich Conference, the Czech border regions were incorporated into Germany, After Britain and France pressured, not Germany, but Czechoslovakia to do so, and they said, we'll help keep the peace. Six months later, Germany dismantled Czechoslovakia as a nation. Realizing their mistake, finally, Britain and France then guaranteed that Poland would remain intact and independent. But what they didn't know, in the meantime... Hitler had negotiated secretly a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union in August of 1939, an agreement that said that Poland will be divided evenly between the Soviets and the Germans. And just weeks later, Hitler and his Nazi propaganda machine claimed that Poland had actually been planning an invasion with Britain and France into Germany, and the ethnic Germans in Poland were now being persecuted. And just to make this point very clear, Hitler's personal army, the dreaded Schulzstaffel, the SS for short, staged a phony attack from Poland into Germany, and they did it on a German radio station, transmitting this live. Thus, on September 1st, 1939, widely known as the official beginning of World War II, Hitler invaded Poland, supposedly in retaliation. Give a little ground, give a little ground, give a little ground. What happened as a result? Well, how about just to Britain and France? As a result, 384 British soldiers lost their lives. 70,000 British civilians lost their lives. 600,000 Frenchmen lost their lives. 6 million Jews lost their lives. And at the time, 3% of the world's population, between 70 and 85 million people, lost their lives. Considered the most devastating single event in human history And how did it start? Seemingly innocent moves, behind-the-scenes trickery with devastating results. But despite the horrific consequences of Hitler's trickery, he was certainly directed by the master of trickery, and that is Satan. And Satan's very first trick resulted in something infinitely worse, and that is every single death in all of human history. Today, somewhere in the vicinity of 160,000 people die every single day. Just for the sake of comparison, as of this morning, about 955,000 people have died who have coronavirus or had coronavirus. That seems like a lot. That's less than six days of normal death on planet Earth. Can you wrap your mind around the fact that every minute, 111 people die somewhere on Earth? What does that sound like? Death, 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 die, 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 die. That's how fast people are dying. All because of one trick. It all began with a conversation. And that's what I'd like to look at today in Genesis 3. In our mini-series looking at Satan and his schemes, I want to look at his very first attack. We just began this series last week, and I feel like we really needed to get here quickly This is the most devastating attack. It's an attack on all of humanity. And as I said last week, while we want to worship Christ and we want to proclaim the joys of the kingdom of Christ and focus our hearts heavenward, we're also compelled to know our enemy. We're compelled to understand the schemes of the evil one. And so we're looking at this little series, Satan and his schemes. And my point this morning is very simply that Satan cleverly works to get you to give a little so that he can take a lot. And we see this pattern very clearly here in this first attack on humanity on the person of Eve, the first woman created directly by God. And Satan is going to use three spiritual weapons. Three spiritual weapons. Now, before we get to those, I want to remind you, Satan cannot take your salvation. He cannot take your personal decision to obey the Lord's word. You may obey any time you want because you walk in the spirit if you choose to do so. Satan can't deceive you into not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot snatch your faith from you. But Satan does attack Christians. If he didn't, why do we have Ephesians 6 that I read earlier? It is to be wary, to give the defenses against his flaming arrows. So what are the three spiritual weapons that Satan wielded successfully against Eve, which have had devastating consequences now for thousands of years? We'll keep these very simple. Satan's first weapon Surprise, surprise. Verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He's crafty. It's not necessarily a negative word. It just means he's cunning. He's clever. It means he's using his intelligence. He came as a serpent to Eve and he surprised her. And I want to spend a few minutes on this. He surprised her in three ways. The first surprise was division. He surprised her with division. He divided so as to conquer. He didn't talk to Adam and Eve as a married couple. He singled her out. He spoke directly to her. It wasn't a three-way conversation, nor did he warn her. He didn't say, hey, put this on your calendar. I'll be trying to destroy all of humanity for all time uh, in the next couple of weeks. So just be ready for that. We're not told why Satan singled out Eve. But it is reasonable to assume that Eve was his target of choice for some reason, that that was purposeful. How do we know this? Because he was crafty. He was cunning. He was clever. Some have theorized that since it was Adam who received the word of the Lord directly in Genesis 2, the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that Eve had perhaps only heard it indirectly from her husband, that maybe Satan was going after the one who was weaker spiritually. I'm going to show you in a, in a while that it may actually be the opposite. But we're not told ultimately why Satan went to Eve. We are told this, though. He said to the woman. He was aiming at her. Genesis 2.24, just before this. Look at this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, one unit, one person in essence, And what does Satan immediately do? He tries to divide that and he goes to one. He goes after Eve and he makes her face him alone and she's completely unaware that she's under attack. And this is often the starting point for Satan. A surprise. And it begins with division. And what happens when you're surprised with division? Well, you you begin getting quickly into emotion and to poor judgment. For example, in your marriage. The seeds of division can begin as it did with Adam and Eve with the desire of one pitted against the desires of the other and now both forgetting that they're one flesh. I, in, in counseling with married couples, generally speaking, symbolically at least, the first thing they do when they sit down is do this. It's to point to the other one. That's not one flesh. In the local church, the seeds of division can begin When the basis for our unity is forgotten. What's the basis of our unity? Some have said that in the local church, sometimes you have to just agree to disagree. That's never seen in the New Testament as a model or a definition of unity. Unity in the body of Christ is exemplified in Ephesians 4.13. Until we all attain to the unity of what? The faith. Unity in what we believe. And what causes this unity of the faith? What is the mechanism that God causes, by which God causes this in the church? The previous verse, verse 12 of Ephesians 4, the shepherds and the teachers. In fact, many scholars take this Greek form which puts these together, the shepherd teacher, the pastor teacher. In other words, being unified under the preaching and teaching of God's word, being equipped, being discipled, being taught. Verse 12, verse 16 says, being equipped, equipped, So no, unity is not we will agree to disagree. Unity is found in sound doctrine which is imparted by the gifts of the shepherds given to the church. Agree to disagree is politics and compromise, not unity. Have you ever seen on the rare occasion when Democrats and Republicans agree on a piece of legislation... And a few representatives from both parties stand outside the Capitol steps, stand together. And they look all happy and they're locked arms and they have a big press conference. And act like they've been behind closed doors just weeping with the unity that they're enjoying together. Of course not. They walk off there and they tell each other to go jump in the lake once they get off the camera. That's not unity. That's politics. Unity is based in doctrine. And therefore, true unity is heartfelt. It's internal. It's internal. It's not merely an outward appearance of agreement. It's an inward burning passion of oneness together. That's unity. And so we would say beware of the surprise of division. There's a second surprise that Satan uses. Disorientation. Disorientation. Satan used novelty. He used catching Eve off balance. She didn't have time to recognize this trickery for what it was. And obviously Eve was not in sin at the moment that Satan came to her. The sin would happen when she gave in. But it does show that she wasn't spiritually aware of the danger. She didn't know what was going on. You all recall that a few months ago when our governor issued a no sing order. Because singing potentially would spread coronavirus. I know for me that was disorienting. It was shocking. It was mind numbing. We'd never dealt with that before, and especially in light of the fact that there was no no rioting in large groups order to go to go along with it. And the order was issued at the very end of the week, right before Sunday. We've always desired to do our very best to obey the government, but now a new line was crossed, a line which dictated how followers of Jesus Christ were to worship him. It was a double bind, it was a paradox. That of course we don't want to get anyone sick. Who would want to do that? And yet never in Scripture does a human authority have the right to command a limitation on the worship of God. Never. And so is disorienting. Satan surprises with division, with disorientation. One more way he surprises, and that is with doubt. With doubt. Satan questioned the word of God in seemingly innocent fashion. The question seems like Satan is just trying to get information. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's a little word in Hebrew at the beginning of Satan's question, which doesn't actually translate exactly into English. The the English standard version uses actually. Did God actually say? But this little word inserts the idea of mocking. It inserts the idea of ridicule. It inserts the idea of sarcasm. So the question is, seriously, God really said that? There's disrespect. There's a looking down the nose. And Now Satan introduces doubt about God's words, not a direct frontal assault. He doesn't say, don't believe anything God says. That wouldn't have worked necessarily. He just does an ever so slight twisting of the word of God, to place a wedge of uncertainty in Eve's mind. And what was the net result? The net result, listen carefully, Eve began to consider two sources of spiritual authority instead of one. She considered now the word of God and Satan, and she fell for the trap that they're somehow in competition with each other. Satan planted doubt by misquoting the word of God. God never said that they could not eat of any of the trees of the garden. He didn't say that. In fact, he created the Garden of Eden for their pure enjoyment and their sustenance. The only prohibition was against eating from the one tree of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And did the placing of doubt work? Yes, it worked like a charm. Verses 2 and 3, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what was God's original command? I read it a moment ago, Genesis 2, 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not die. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What happened? Satan planted the seeds of doubt in Eve's mind, doubt in God's word, and then he just sat back. Because then Eve watered and germinated those seeds all on her own. You notice that her paraphrase of God's word is inaccurate. Eve said that God said we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. In Hebrew, to emphasize this permission to eat, the the word eat is simply repeated. We translate it, you may surely eat. In Hebrew, you may eat eat. What is he saying? It means definitely Absolutely, positively, God is inviting, God is welcoming. It's the difference between, would you like some food? And come sit at my table, come enjoy the bounty of this feast. And so, what did Eve do? She subtracted from God's word. She subtracted. Eve said that God said, verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. God never said, neither shall you touch it. What has she done now? Now she's added to God's word. What is the very last warning in all of the Bible? Revelation 22, do not add or subtract from the word of God. What do you call it when you add laws to the original law of God we call that legalism when you're adding laws that God never said it's exactly what the Pharisees did in Jesus day seemingly to keep people from disobeying the law of Moses but really it was to place them in bondage listen one of the greatest ploys of Satan is to turn your eyes to see any other spiritual authority as somehow in competition with the Bible with the word of God it's not a competition And there may be times in life where a mild knowledge of the scriptures is going to be inadequate for you and you will be unarmed. In some cases, study and searching the scriptures is necessary. You have to go beyond a pet verse or two. You have to go beyond a favorite passage. You have to seek what the whole counsel of God says concerning an issue that might take you weeks. That might take months. That might take years. What did Eve do? She immediately engaged with Satan and his twisting of the word of God. Eve's initial inaccuracy opened the door to completely denying the truthfulness, completely denying the perfection of God's word. She subtracted from his word and she added to it. What's the obvious lesson about Satan's surprises, all of his surprises? I think we could take a hint from a Greek word used in the New Testament, Gregoreo. And you'll have to remember that, but it's important. It's very helpful. Gregoreth is translated in various ways. Stay awake. Watch. Be on the alert. Be watchful. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, 41, Watch, Gregoretho, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. In other words, don't trust yourself. Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus who were about to be spiritually attacked. In Acts 20 verse 31, he said, therefore, be alert, Gregorio, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In other words, he says, remember what I taught you, be alert. Paul told the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. We started with this last week, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, Gregoretto, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What is happening with surprise? Surprise happens when you're caught spiritually off guard. So what does the New Testament say to do? Be watchful, be on the alert. Pay attention, stay awake. How do you do that? Well, some of the uses of Gregoreo help us understand that. We could do three. There's probably many more. I could preach a whole series on this. But three ways to be watchful. First of all, prayer. Prayer. Colossians four, two, continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful. Gregoreo in it in thanksgiving. Satan love would love to catch you not praying because you know what's ironic? It's only when your eyes are closed in prayer when they're open to the wiles of the devil. Prayer. Another way you can be watchful. Remembrance. Remembrance. Jesus told the church of Sardis in Revelation 3, verse 3, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up. There it is again. I will come like a thief. You will not know it. What hour I will come against you? How sad is that when the Lord Jesus Christ has to warn a church, I'm about to come after you. And he says, wake up. But What were they to remember? Well, he says, what they have received and heard. The word of God imparted to them. They were to remember what they'd been taught. Get away from human opinions. Get away from only what you can see. Discern through spiritual eyes, through remembering what you've been taught. One of you recently, fairly new member here at Grace, just happened to mention, as I said, you might want to go back and listen to a few sermons and start getting caught up. And he said, I have, I listened to 250. Like, wow, either you're really dedicated to the Lord or you don't have a life. I don't know which one it is. But remembrance, what have I been taught about God the Father? What have I been taught about God the Son? What have I been taught about God the Holy Spirit? What have I been taught about the doctrine of worship? What have I been taught about the doctrine of the church? What have I been taught about salvation? What have I been taught about sanctification? What have I been taught about justification and regeneration? What have I been taught about Israel? What have I been taught about what the church is to be about? What have I been taught about evangelism? What have I been taught about the whole story of the Bible? The redemptive plan of God? These things need to be sunk deeply into me and I need to remember these things. In this way, you can be watchful a third way. Prayer, remembrance, a third way to be watchful, we'll call faithfulness. Faithfulness, Paul told the leadership of the Corinthian church that was so prone to wander into difficulties. He said in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, very familiar, be watchful, there's Gregorio again, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. What does that mean? Stick to what you believe. What do you believe about christ stick to it what do you believe from scripture about the holy spirit stick to it what do you believe about the god the father from the scriptures stick to it what do you believe about the doctrine of the church stick to it what do you believe about worship stick to it and nobody will get you off track by the way this is a note i don't want to say gregoretto is used 22 times in the new testament be on the alert be watchful 11 of them half are to the leaders and elders of the church, half. Beware of surprise. There's a second way cleverly, Satan cleverly works to get you to give a little so that he can take a lot. Surprise, second way is seduction. Seduction, lure, enticement, attraction, coaxing, appeal. And how does he do this? What is at the core of seduction? It is lies, lies, Verses four and five. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Short sentences, five lies. Five lies in here. And all the lies are mixed in with truth. That's what makes him so dangerous. He doesn't say God is a gopher, so you shouldn't worship him. Satan would say, Eve would say, no, God's not a gopher. He mixes in lies with truth. I want to go through these five lies. The first one we'll call the lie of no consequences. The lie of no consequences. Satan said Eve would not die. And it's true, instant physical death would not happen, but that's because of God's kindness and grace, not because of God's dishonesty. But Satan downplayed the, the resulting spiritual death that would happen With the physical death that would come, Adam and Eve would be spiritually separated from God and now any relationship, any fellowship they would have with God would have to be mediated from a distance. It would be, put it this way, the difference between the unity of a husband and wife and a husband and wife trying to visit through the visitation glass of a federal penitentiary. That's the difference. He said, you will not surely die. One hundred billion human beings later would say, oh, there were consequences. The second lie we'll call the lie of unreliability. The lie of unreliability. Satan implied that God's word is not reliable. If God said that they were going to die, but they didn't then maybe God didn't fully mean what he said. Maybe Eve could take matters into her own hands. Maybe she could use her own intellect. She's pretty smart. Maybe she could use her own logic, use her own will to figure out what the real truth is. And boy, doubt quickly slips into denial. Very, very quickly. And her decision to deny the word of God led not only to horrible consequences in her own family, see also Cain and Abel, but to horrible consequences for the whole world. Doubting and denying the word of God has disastrous consequences for not just one person, but for many. Ephesians 6 says that Satan fires these fiery darts or arrows. A fiery arrow is not meant to neutralize one enemy. It's meant to neutralize one enemy and set fire to many around. And so denying the word of God has catastrophic consequences. The lie of unreliability. He tells her a third lie. We'll call this one the lie of equality. The lie of equality. Satan said that eating the fruit would open her eyes, making her like God, knowing good and evil. That is entirely true. And yet he left something out. It was a lie of omission. Yes, they would now know good from evil, but they weren't immutable or unchangeable in holiness as God is. And therefore, not only would they know evil, but they would know it experientially and become evil. God cannot sin. He cannot be tempted. He's never led astray. But Eve, by eating the fruit of the forbidden tree, did have her eyes open to evil. And the first thing she found out is that it was now her. And she was evil. She was fooled into being evil. Now there's no going back. This isn't a two-way door. She goes through that door, and it's forever. Her nature was changed because God's promise of spiritual death came true. Satan was attempting to make God smaller and more like men and attempting to make man bigger and believe himself to be more like God. When you defy the word of God, what are you saying? You're saying, I know better. I know better. If you say, I know better, what are you saying? I am equal to God. And what was Satan's first sin? You remember from Isaiah 14, verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In fact, that concept of making man bigger and God smaller is so important in this text. We're going to come back here in about six weeks and look at that topic alone. Here's another lie, the fourth one, the lie of mischaracterizing God. The lie of mischaracterizing God verse 5 Satan says for God knows what does that imply that implies that God is trying to keep a secret that he desperately doesn't want you to find out God was jealously guarding his deity his glory to not share it with anyone I mean he said himself in Isaiah 48 verse 11 my glory I will not give to another but Satan's implication is that God guarding his own glory was bad not good And here's the lie. Satan's telling Eve, oh, Eve, God isn't protecting you with this rule about the tree. He's protecting himself. He's guarding himself. And Satan casts God as a weak, insecure, fake deity who's nothing more than the Wizard of Oz, who is a weak little man behind a curtain projecting some fake image on a wall. How do we mitigate against that? The lie of mischaracterizing God. This is why we need theology proper. This is why you need to know your God. This is why you need the attributes of God. This is why you need to rehearse that God is infinite. That he is self-existing. That he is without origin. That he's immutable. He's unchangeable. That he is self-sufficient. He's self-powered. He's omnipotent. Meaning he's all-powerful. He's omnisapient. Meaning he's all-wise. He's omnipresent. Meaning he's everywhere present. He's faithful, he's true, he's perfectly good at all times, he's just, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's kind, he's loving, he's wrathful against evil, and he's infinitely glorious and majestic. And when you consider that God is infinite, self-existing, without origin, immutable, unchangeable, self-sufficient, self-powered, omnipotent, omnisapient, Omnipresent, faithful and true, perfectly good, just, merciful, gracious, kind, loving, wrathful, infinitely glorious and majestic. You put all that into one package and the angels of heaven tell us what that really means. All compacted into one phrase, the totality of the fact that God is unique. God is set apart. God is other than everything. There is nothing like him. The angels tell us what that means all in one package when they cry out, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The holiness of God is not an attribute of God. The holiness of God is all of His attributes put together in one word that says, He is other. And when Satan said to Eve, Oh, you could be like God. She should have said, You're an idiot. No one is like God. No one is like God. There's one more lie he tells her the lie of self gratification. The lie of self gratification. Worst of all, Satan convinced Eve that he had her best interests in mind, and God did not. You remember that Ezekiel 28 told us that Satan was the guardian cherub, that his duty was to do the opposite of what he's doing. He should have been by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, simply quoting God's word to them continually to remind them. And in fact, there's reasonable evidence that this was his duty. This was his duty. They were apparently at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when this conversation takes place. He's a guardian angel in an age and time when there's nothing to guard against. Except one thing, the potential sin of humanity. That's all. And instead of reminding Adam and Eve of the word of God, he betrayed them. Adam and Eve were the king and the queen of planet Earth to rule in God's stead, created to reign and to rule, and their chief bodyguard stabbed him in the back. Satan said essentially, this is good for you. This will benefit you. What a lie when we make decisions based on whatever's easiest, whatever's most convenient, whatever won't hurt us, whatever feels the best. Listen, this is why you have to read about the Christian martyrs. You have to read about the martyrs, about great men and women of God who lost their lives for the sake of the faith. It helps strengthen you to not fall for Satan's ploys when something is convenient, when it seems like it would feel good. In fact, many of the martyrs of the past, especially in the time of the Reformation and the centuries after that, they could have avoided their fate by simply saying the words that authorities wanted them to say. They would have been set free, but instead they died. They died. They were faithful at all costs. I said this before, you notice that all these lies were mixed with truths. Satan has certainly used the COVID crisis to attack the church of Jesus Christ which, of course, God is ultimately using for his own purposes. He's winnowing and purifying the church. But this attack is cunning because it was lies mixed with truth. The truth is COVID is a real disease that's really killing people every day, mixed with a sly attack on the people of God and an attack on the lordship of Jesus Christ over his church. It's all mixed in together. There's a third way that Satan cleverly works to get you to give a little so he can take a lot. Surprise, seduction through lies. And the last one, self-confidence. Self-confidence. Verse six. So the woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Oh, what did Satan do? Satan gave her confidence to believe in herself. You should be terrified of believing in yourself. And what do we see here? You ready for this? We see the very first use of the scientific method. Eve used her own observations, the use of science to determine spiritual truth. Now, the scientific method basically says, you know this from school, that what may be observed with the eyes is the basis of truth. And that's certainly true to a certain degree, but science very quickly through all the ages has become the religion. Believe the science. It becomes the spiritual authority. Watch Fox News, watch CNN, watch any news outlet, and watch these people tell us about COVID. What? Believe the science. Now, the question is well, which one? From whom? And Dr. Terry Mortensen with Answers in Genesis came to Steadfast a couple years ago. He taught adamantly a six-day creation. That's why we brought him. In one of his talks, he gave a list of prominent Christian theologians who subscribe to theistic evolution. The evolution happened over millions and billions of years and it did happen, but God started it. So it's okay. And of course, that's nonsense. The word of God says otherwise. I had a long conversation with Dr. Mortensen. That evening, he relayed a series of challenges he had made to a theologian whose name you probably know. His theology sits on my shelf. Godly man, but this particular theologian had rolled over on the issue of of uh, theistic evolution. And he relayed this conversation to me. And Dr. Mortensen's challenge to this theologian basically was: "You have a doctorate. You know how to think critically." Challenge theistic evolution and do it publicly with the word of God. And you know what the theologian answered? He said, I can't. I'm not a scientist. And you know what Mortensen said? You must because you were a theologian. Eve used her own logic. You know, the same science that we trust today 200 years ago was bleeding people to death to cure a cold. She used her own logic Her own perceived ability to make a right and sound judgment. And now she's contemplating sin. She's mulling it over. She's justifying it in her mind. She saw that the tree was good for food. Well, it has nutritional value. It probably tastes good. It will satisfy her hunger. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. There's emotional value to make you feel good. There's a reason that food is served in a way that's attractive to the eyes. It it has an emotional impact. And she saw that it was to be desired to make one wise. What does that mean? Oh, my self-esteem could be boosted. I could be smarter. I could be wiser. I could be more proud of myself. But this is exactly what the Apostle John warned us about. 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the desire of the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust, the desire of the eyes. And she saw that it was to be desired to make one wise, to make her proud of herself. That's the pride of life. It's the same thing. The battle in Genesis 3 was first for her mind, which led to the loss of her soul. What you believe in your mind leads to behavior which either honors God or dishonors God. Listen carefully. Have confidence in yourself. And you will dishonor God. Have confidence in God's word and you will honor God. Those are your only two choices. And surprise, look who was with Eve the whole time. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Where has he been? What's Adam been up to? He was with her. He's abdicated his leadership. He has not made a stand. He's passively let his wife be in charge. Now I want you to follow my logic here. This is going to take a little bit of brain power. First Timothy 2.14 says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, the context of 1 Timothy 2 is a condemnation of the woman for having been deceived. But the fact of the matter still is that the word of God says Adam was not deceived. What does that mean? Who is God held responsible for all the sin of all the world? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that in Adam... All die He said in Romans 5:12 that sin came into the world through one man. God places the blame for sinful humanity not on Eve but on Adam. And why is that? The woman may have been deceived and tricked, but Adam, as John Calvin wrote, would never have dared oppose god 's authority unless he already disbelieved god 's word. Why did Satan go to Eve? We could theorize not because she was the easier nut to crack, but because she was the harder. And if Eve goes down, Adam goes with her. Adam was already on the verge of disbelief, according to 1 Timothy 2. He wasn't deceived. He simply disbelieved. And what happened as a result... Verse 7, And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Before they'd been naked in the garden and unashamed, Genesis 2, but now giving in to their sensual desires to disobey God, it made their physical nakedness now represent their spiritual nakedness before God. And now the guilt and the blaming and the conflict enter in. Verse 8 Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, meaning in the wind and the storm. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Satan cleverly works to get you to give a little so that later he can take a lot. And he does this with surprise, with seduction, and with self-confidence. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. The lesson we started with was very simply, if you give a little ground, if you compromise a little, then later on you'll have gigantic battles to fight. Instead of setting a firm boundary, now you're fighting an all-out war. Adam and Eve gave a little ground. But did you notice something? They didn't die immediately. They didn't die physically. In fact, they went on to live almost a thousand years. A fruitful life. Yes, sin sin had entered in and their souls are marred with a sin nature which has been passed to every one of us. But God knew who was ultimately the blame. Genesis three, fourteen. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, and all, all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The significance of snakes crawling around on their belly now are always a reminder that they are cursed as the representative of Satan. And between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve would be war, battle, enmity. Satan would bruise the heel of the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Eve would bruise, crush, mortally wound the head of Satan. And here we have so soon on the heels of the entrance of sin into the world an immediate first promise of the savior in latin they call it the first gospel the first promise of jesus christ but until that savior would come verse 21 says and the lord god made for adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them how did he get garments of skin he killed adam and eve witnessed death for the first time and saw that shed blood mitigates the curse of sin and death Of course, animal sacrifices are absolutely insufficient. So the coming offspring of Eve, the Lord Jesus Christ would have to come to offer himself on the cross as a holy and perfect and once for all sacrifice. And what's the result concerning the curse of sin and of death? The New Testament, and I wish I had more time to to do this, but the New Testament is a veritable crescendo of the victory over death that we enjoy. Romans 6.23, you're familiar with this. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans eight two. for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15.26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then how about this one? Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And Jesus himself said in Revelation 1:17 and 18, he said, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death. In Revelation two eleven. Jesus himself said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And in Revelation 20, verse 14, says death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then you, precious brothers and sisters, you get one last promise about the victory over death through Christ. In Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And for the Christian, this crescendo has culminated in Revelation 21 around and in New Jerusalem, on New Earth, in New Heaven. But there's one more mention of death and it is a warning. The last mention of death in the Bible is to the unbeliever. Revelation one eight. but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, for you as a Christian, Satan might hurt you. If you're not wary, he might hurt you badly. You might get caught by surprise, by seduction, by self-confidence, But you'll never taste the second death. You'll never taste the final judgment of God. You will never face God to answer for your sins. For Christ alone faced God to answer for your sins. But if you don't know Christ. If you don't know Christ. You are powerless against Satan. Who will drag you blind, deaf and mute spiritually. Into an eternal fate of doom He is the God of this world. And in your case, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, there's something about the preached gospel that happens. When the gospel is proclaimed, when the name of Jesus is spoken, sometimes by the power of God, the eyelids of the spiritually blind are open just a little, just a crack to let in just enough light where we can say, open your eyes, unstop your ears, loose the tongue to name the name of Jesus Christ and come to Christ. Call out in your heart to Christ. And the only reason you can do that is because Christ is calling to you first. And he's opened the eyelids just enough for you to see. Let the Spirit of God open them all the way. Christ is the one who can pierce the darkness of your soul and shed the light of salvation and forgiveness on sin. If you're a Christian, rejoice in that, but don't let that make you lack in wariness against the evil one either. You will go to heaven. Just go victoriously. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now in thankfulness and gratitude for the Word of God, which so clearly sheds light on the beauty and the glory of Christ, clearly sheds light on the joys of salvation, our coming heavenly home. And at the same time, we are warned that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We're told, resist him, firm in your faith. And that is our prayer, Lord, that in learning to know our enemy, we would serve Christ all the better by not being caught by surprise or seduction or self confidence. And now, Lord, our confidence must be only in you and in what you've done at the cross. And we would come now to that holy supper, the Lord's table, where we would remember the body and the blood of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would humble our hearts, that we would come with thankfulness, with humility. We love you and thank you for this culmination, this ultimate high point of Christian worship, the Lord's table. We pray in Christ's name, amen.